Welcome to Beyond Consulting. We are the podcast dedicated to helping listeners navigate a career after consulting. I'm Stephen Haug, host of Beyond Consulting and engagement manager at ECA Partners. Each week on the podcast, we host folks who have spent some time in consulting, but then made a career pivot or a change. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Abrish Gupta, founder and CEO of Basis Vectors. Abrish, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stephen. We're very happy to hear you. And I can tell you, looking at your career, whenever I'm speaking with consultants here at ECA Partners, thinking through what they envision for their career, if they had complete control of their destiny, I think nine out of 10 of them would be hopeful that their career would end up the way that, that yours has. So I'd love just to start off and get that quick overview of your career, if you don't mind. Absolutely, Stephen. And thanks for the kind word. My career started in 2000, year 2000, so almost 22 years back. I graduated from one of the IITs in India. These the people who may know, these are like famous universities in India, modeled after MIT and Harvard in the US. The, I have a degree in computer science. This was year 2000, so it was very natural for the graduates of computer science to make a beeline to Silicon Valley and uh, start a career in engineering. That is what I ended up doing, except that I took a detour to Australia and Germany. So I spent a year in Australia as an engineer, and I spent three months working in Germany for a research institute called Fraunhofer Institute of Computer Graphics. In the hindsight, it was great really doing this. All my batchmates, they all showed up in US, and they, after India, they had only seen one country and one cultural environment. In my case, I had seen three. And it was not a big deal at that time, but I think from the point of view of making holistic decisions in my career, I think this experience was very, very useful. I lived in Sydney in Australia and I was part of a small team of engineers who were building one of the first sub hundred dollar printer controllers. You know, the printer controller is this little device that goes into a printer. It's a brain of a printer. It's pretty much decides like what the printer does. And I was working for a company called EFI, which made printer controllers. It's, it's a U.S. company. So that was a great experience. I ended up coming to U.S. in 2001 and <laughs> not a very good timing. You know, 2001, August, I landed in U.S. and September 11 happened. The economy was in very bad shape. I spent two years in the Valley working for a company called Electronics for Imaging, in which we, I had worked in Australia as well. 2003, the recession was in full force and things were not moving forward. I decided that I was not going to hang on and just wait for my career to move forward. I'm just going to take things in my own hand. And I decided to start a company. Given I was in the U.S. on a visa, which didn't really allow me to start a company, I basically left my career and went back to India. 2003, I take this drastic move of going back to India to start a company and struggle for one and a half years. I remember I had $40,000 in my bank account when I landed in India. And by the time I was done, I had $500 left. The company did not go anywhere, the company that I started. And that's altogether a different story. But I was looking to start a company which was doing something around, something similar to Fandango. That didn't really work out. Then I tried to start a company which was similar to Rent.com at that time. You know, apartment search on internet. That was also a good idea, but couldn't execute. It didn't really go anywhere. One and a half years of struggle. Even though the business didn't really go anywhere, I learned tons, tons of things. I think one of the very important thing in career is, you know, if you brood over something and you kind of 
think about that I should do this and not do it. It just takes very large amount of your energy. You should just get done with it. And when you get done with it, like that one branch is gone, right? You know, that option is taken away. So you put all your energy on the second option, which was plan B earlier. For me, the plan B was do an MBA and live, build a career in consulting or private equity. When this company failed, I decided to come back to US and join MBA program at Carnegie Mellon with an idea that I'll join McKinsey or Booz Allen after this, and then that will give me operating experience to eventually join a private equity firm. This is what I wanted. I was successful. I got internship in Booz Allen and I joined McKinsey and Company in Pittsburgh office right after MBA. Amazing experience in terms of exposure to the different industries, the very smart people, the fast moving environment. It was incredible experience. I worked in McKinsey and Company in the Pittsburgh office between 2007 to 2009. I realized that I'm not very good with timing. I came to US in 2001 and 2009, I was looking to get into private equity, which was exactly the wrong time to join private equity and things did not really move forward. So what I thought at that time was that instead of joining private equity and sitting there in a very recessionary environment, might as well try to start another company. And if it fails, then I'll have a strong operating experience to show to private equity firm and say, you know what, I have real experience of building a business and you know, fail, but you know, I still know what the ground reality is. And if you succeed, then I am an entrepreneur. With that idea, I started Molarity as a SaaS telephoning company and compared to the first time, my first startup, which was a consumer company, this time I was trying to be very safe. So I went to B2B, which typically is easier companies to build. An idea which was heavily taken from companies in US, Ring Central and Twilio, they're already modeled cloud telephony in US. And I raised capital first time around, I ran out of money, you know, I couldn't raise any capital. So I first raised capital this time with these things. And of course, the knowledge, much better understanding of how the business run, thanks to my MBA and stint at Boozell and McKinsey. I started this company and I was expecting that it would fail, but it did not, but ended up being successful. And I ran Nolarity for nine years, 2000. 9 to 2018, it ended up being 400 employees, company with 10,000 customers across Asia, Asian, various Asian companies based in Singapore, but India, Middle East, you know, Philippines, Dubai, you know, the Singapore, Thailand, you know, all these countries we had customers. And very, very enriching experience, incredibly enriching experience. Everything about leadership, management, crisis management. When, when you're doing, when you're running the company yourself, you don't really have any other choice other than to just figure it out and execute on the ground. So I ended up doing this for nine years. I ended up being angel investors, invested in a lot of small companies, made name. The company got sold recently as well for large triple digit million dollar outcome, cash outcome for all the you know, very good outcome for all the uh, investors and, and the employees. After this, I read somewhere that the Typically, the B2B entrepreneurs, when they are successful, they start another one. You know, they become a repeat entrepreneur. But for me, it was not intellectually exciting to do the same thing or even be the CEO of a B2B SaaS company. I quite enjoy the intellectual side of building a company than just the operating side of building a company. The idea that I had in my mind was that I know so much about B2B SaaS and every component of B2B SaaS. I built up a company from scratch. What if I start a private equity firm which goes and buys a B2B SaaS company which may be undervalued for performance reason, for optical reason, you know, whatever. If I pick up an undervalued company and fix it, that is much more leveraged way of 
monetizing what I have learned in the last 19 years rather than building another company. So with that idea, I started Basis Vectors. I'm the founder CEO of Basis Vectors. Very different from a typical private equity firm. It's not just the capital. We bring it a lot of operating capabilities around SaaS. That is just coming from my own background. It's a very verticalized private equity firm. We only invest in SaaS companies in North America. Very fast-paced because it's just a deep domain expertise. We can make decisions very quickly. And very unique position in the market as well compared to many other private equity firms and even SaaS-focused private equity firms. We differentiate ourselves by targeting a market that was underserved that required somebody to roll up the sleeves and know the operations of a B2B SaaS company. So that allowed us to build up a very unique position in the market. And we have done two acquisitions so far. The second one actually done just a week back. And we're in the process of building up a billion dollar company by buying 10 to 12 companies in the next two years and taking the holding company, which is buying all these companies public. If you look at my career, it is, I do things at the ground level and then I kind of build on it to a little bit more abstracted out version of myself. An engineer to business person because I didn't want to commit myself just building things. I wanted to see, you know, how those things are used. And that led me to McKinsey. And from McKinsey, I wanted to apply the strategy, not advise people, just but to apply this strategy myself to see, you know, how good those strategies are. And that allowed me a lot of discoveries and but also operating experience of building a company. And once the company was built, my view was, you know, whatever learnings I have had, can you abstract it out and apply it to not just one company, but 10 companies in parallel. And that led to basic sectors. I'll be running this business for the next five to 10 years at least. That's great. I mean, that is quite a story there. So started as engineer, became an entrepreneur, risked everything, failed, failed, failed. I'm, I'm curious about the, the one time that it worked. When did that one feel different? You know, when did you have a sense that Nolarity was going to be the one? I mean, very early on. So what we did was, even before we built the product for Nolarity, I went on selling. I remember I spoke with 13 potential customers. And out of 13, 11 wanted it. And that gave me a confidence that we should build something like this. I would say that was like the first inkling. And that was within three months of, you know, conceiving this idea. The second, I think the bigger push that we got was we started selling to small businesses. And there was a saying in India, and we started doing it in India. There was a saying in India that Indian business will never buy any software because they could just pirate software. So the thinking was software, you know, we can just... The people are pirating Windows or Microsoft Windows. So nobody was in the mood to buy any software. But in our case, and it was a subscription product, we would charge these customers 12 months in advance. So not month on month, but for the next 12 months in one shot, pre-build them. And they were willing to do that. They were paying me 12 months worth of the subscription, even before the services were started. And that is just like the you basically the hardest possible customer, the most ephemeral product, and you're taking cash in advance even before giving them a product. When I told my investors and my advisors that I'm able to do that, they said that, that there's no harder proof than this, that this market needs it. And after that, we didn't look back. You know, it was 200 people Salesforce we built, 400 channel partners to sell this product all over India, Dubai, Philippines, Thailand, all these markets. That's great. So you attribute, it sounds like two things were really clicking there. First, great product that you developed. Second, it sounds like you're a great salesman as well. Which one of those do you think played a larger role? I think in a SaaS product, the salesman is more important. 
than building a product. Building product is also important because if the quality is poor, you're not going to sell it also. I think sales is far more important than building a product in SaaS companies. I did not know that I was a salesperson. While building Nolarity, I discovered that. I was a McKinsey consultant advising CEOs on strategy, you know, in banking and insurance, that that was my expertise. And in US, in New York and in Boston, from there I fly back to Gurgaon and go to a small business, which is a travel agent and trying to sell him uh, <laughs> a phone number, a business phone number that you should pay $400 for a year for. I think it's, it's a storytelling. I think, I think some component is how you make a presentation, right? You basically have to make a logical argument. I think that's a large part of the sales. I think being able to tell a story, a standardized story to a large number of people, I think that's a very important part of sales. But somehow it clicked. <laughs> somehow it clicked and it worked and we, we ended up selling thousands and thousands of these products. That's amazing. And thinking about time here, you mentioned a couple of times that you're uh, very good at starting things at inopportune times. Whenever I hear that you started a business in, in 2009, first thing that comes to mind is sort of right at the height of the recession there. I'm not sure if things are bouncing back. Tough to convince investors. Happy to chat about that. But I'm also curious about the state of cloud computing at that time, because the business you started, Nolarity, was a, a cloud business. Is that right? That's right. So what was the state of cloud? I mean, when you were talking to investors, did they know what you were talking about? Was this the hot new thing or were you a little bit ahead of the game there? I think very much ahead of the game. The B2B SaaS in 2009 was not a big deal, even in US, forget about in India. India, we pretty much formed one of the first B2B SaaS companies selling into Indian markets. So it was a very new thing. What worked for us was people were able to refer back to the success of Ring Central and Twilio, and they were kind of already becoming successful, to say that Ring Central and Twilio could only build a product for developed economies because of certain regulations and those things. There's going to be a corresponding company in the emerging markets. I mean, there's a similar story as Amazon versus Alibaba. Amazon was a great model and Alibaba started saying the same model applies to China as well. I think that's the logic that investors use. And Sequoia Capital, which provided Series A investment, had invested in Ring Central and made good money. So, you know, they had conviction and they had enough conviction to give it a try. I think that helped quite a bit. But this was an investor's, I would say, conviction. The customer or potential customer did not give a damn about, you know, the what the cloud computing was. I think what worked was this inherent niceness of payment from customers to the company in cloud computing. So the emerging market, the businesses are famously cash strapped. They don't have money. If you have them pay, in our case, we actually have them pay for a year, but even a year or six months at a time is far superior deal than having to buy a hardware that they had to buy. So what we were replacing was this hardware PBX box. And we were not even replacing it. Most of the places we went, there was no, people were using their mobile phone as the business phone number and they needed a business phone number. But the hardware PBX was $3,000, $4,000, while our services would be $400, $500 per year. So from the pricing perspective, from the ease of use perspective, it was much superior product. And that part of the cloud computing, they did not know about the cloud computing, but that part they liked. And it worked. So it was very bottom up, the innovation. Then 
Yeah, and again, such an exciting story there. But as you mentioned early on, it took a few tries, eliminating a few paths before you found the one that worked. How many ventures did you say you started before going to business school? I mean, I started one and it was called Inventica Solutions, one and a half years. And it was, I think the, initially the idea was Inventica Solution start a Fandango kind of business, but that business failed in two months. And that's very fast failure because the business partner that I was started the business with, we both came from US back to India in Bangalore. And he basically changed his mind within 15 days of landing. So that business not going anywhere. And But I didn't want to go fly back and you know, I wanted to give it a full try. And I changed the idea to rent.com kind of idea. I think there's a lot of interesting learnings. I think one powerful learning is that when you start anything, that should be a plan A, not plan B. And in my case, I had this idea that if it fails, I will go for an MBA. And when I go to MBA, I'll have some prior understanding of how the business runs. So when you have a very nice, comfortable, cushy option of going for an MBA, you're not going to give it a hard try. And I think that that made the, I would say, the first idea. The second is when you're an engineer, many times you don't really know so much about the business. And in India at that time, it's very early. There was no ecosystem to help you no angel investors, no shareholders. The kind of ecosystem that exists today in Bangalore for a startup, I think if it was there, I probably would have just continued. But many of those things are missing. No investment, no mentorship, no network. People did not like to join startups. I did not have money. I myself was very incompetent. I understood how to build a product, but did not know how to do pricing, how to sell, how to look at the segmentation. Many things contributed to failure of that business, but I learned a lot, incredible amount of learning. And then, as I said earlier, you cross off the thing that is at the top of your mind. So, you know, you just, then you never look at that thing. Again. I think one of the things you said earlier there is quite insightful. The idea that, you know, look, we all want to be successful. If you have two ways of doing it, starting a, a successful company or going to get an MBA, both of those are a mark of success. Whenever you started your first company, you had a backup plan, the business school option there. And that backup plan was a pretty cushy option. And that sounds like because you had the fallback plan, it made starting your business a little bit harder. Was that right? I would agree with that. Yeah, well, I think that that is an interesting point there. Wanted to pivot a little bit, very curious about your current operation, investing strategies, those sort of things, of course, but wanted to dive into your consulting career as well. Looking at your resume, I see about three different consulting positions. It's like Microsoft, Booz Allen, and McKinsey. Is that right? That's right. Good. But McKinsey is where you really spent the most of your time? That's right. If you could do it all over again, would you have gone to business school and then McKinsey before starting any of your businesses? That's a very good question. A lot of people don't need that. There are a lot of entrepreneurs who figure out things along the way. And that there are different people, different entrepreneurs of different types. There are some people who think very top down. Some people start very bottom up and figure out things and abstract out things. Some people are able to go and get more strategic people in the team to help them. In my case, I would have failed if I did not have McKinsey and MBA school experience. I thought of molarity in a very top-down way. I thought of basis vectors in a very top-down way. 
and that kind of top-down thinking and perspective required me to work with McKinsey and Booz. That gave me that perspective. Being having spent two years in the MBA school also gave me time to be able to just look at the world from abstracted out MBA education pers- you know look at the business from this perspective and kind of see how different industries work. You know, what make one company more successful than others? You know, what are the important things? It just gave me a little bit of time to digest and form my opinion, which I executed in reality. The lot of other entrepreneurs that I see today, I'm just surprisingly good at what I learned in many years. They are able to figure out one year or less than that time, you know, but people are what they are and they do things their own way. I would probably find it very difficult to build a company and without this perspective. It sounds like you went to consulting and consulting firms and business school to really develop a toolkit that you may have been missing from your engineering programs, wrapped up the consulting career, had the MBA toolkit. Was there anything that was missing out of there? Like anything that you've learned since then that you wish you'd learned there? Any gaps that you had to fill in after completing those programs? I would say many. One big thing that people miss in the MBA school is this whole human side of managing people. That is just totally missing. Like you don't really understand. Just because somebody reports to you doesn't mean that the person will be high performer under you and listen to you. The That's a very large component, very large part of building a company. You need to be able to find right people. You need to be able to figure out what they can do and what they cannot do and be able to provide them support and push them when needed to to get them to perform. Just like it's totally missing. It's absolutely missing in the MBA school curriculums. The second, I would say, for the whole efficient market hypothesis is just doesn't really work in reality. Like the world is full of inefficiencies and inefficiencies are not filled out for decades. This arbitrage everywhere. Execution is incredibly important and then execution all totally depends on what the kind of people that you hire and put them on to achieve something. I would go on to say that today everybody knows what the strategy of the company should be because there's so much literature available, industries are analyzed, you know, you, you know what your company should be doing. The problem is that just making it do it, you know, it's just very difficult to make people. It's all ultimately all people. So I think that I would say was large missing part. I think when I was trying to do sales, dealing with the customers and empathize with them and understand where they are coming from and not make them a data point, but being able to go through the non-scalable part of understanding customer, I think that is also missing. So I feel that the MBA schools and even consulting companies, they are very intellectual and the business has intellectual part, but there's a very large part, which is very human. And that whole part is missing out. Last last two and a half years, I developed pretty deep interest in psychology because of this reason. So I studied depth psychology in Carl Jung because I think there is a implications to how you lead an organization. Interesting. I think a few follow-up questions around those points might be helpful to our listeners. First, the point of diving into psychology to help better understand how to grow your businesses. Are there any books you'd recommend to folks, maybe current consultants looking to make the jump out of consulting? I have interesting philosophy and I would take a step back and I would kind of think about deeply, what should one do? (laughs) This is a very deep question. What should one do in life? And fortunately, people who are a consultant and in consulting 
practices, they have luxury to choose what they want to do. They are not starving. There is no such issue. They can make a deliberate decision on what, where they want to spend 8 to 10 hours of their waking hours every day. And if they want to answer that, they have to go back and think about what should one do and what should they specifically do in their lives, which potentially could give them satisfaction. To know what should a person do, the person has to know himself. And that is even more difficult thing to do because we spend very large part of, especially the high performers, quote unquote, who end up being consulting firms, we perform under peer pressure. You know, we go to best schools and you know, best MBA school and then the best jobs. It's the best definition is what everybody else is doing. So we don't really spend as much time to uh, ask yourself, what do we want? Right. And if, and if you don't do that, you're not used to asking that question. There's one famous book that I read, a book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning in Life. And this is one of my favorite books. And it talks about three things potentially you could do. You can build something, you could experience something, you can gain knowledge about something, and there's one more, I forget. And that gives meaning in life. And I think people need to introspect to figure out what personally they find meaning in. And once you do that, then start the process of actually doing it, like actually going and performing it. And I think great thing about consultants is once they know the objective function, they know how to optimize it. So once they know the objective function for themselves in terms of what makes them happy, they will figure out, they're great problem solvers, they'll figure out how to achieve that particular thing. The bigger issue is knowing what objective function is, what to optimize for. That is helpful. And I'm sure a lot of your fellow consultants who find themselves in an earlier part in their career than you are right now, they'll find that advice very helpful. I want to fast forward a little bit through your career. We've had the chance to talk about Nolarity a little bit. You started that business, grew it for a little over nine years, and then sold it for over $100 million. Is that right? Yeah, something around those numbers. Good. And then you decided to, uh, I think it's funny, you started that business as a way to help prove yourself to private equity firms, but it went too well. And so you just became a private equity firm, which I think is a certainly happy ending to that story. Was that the, the goal all along? You know, you were running your own business. At what point in growing that company did you make the decision that you know, I'm going to sell this in a number of years and then I'm going to start my own company, I guess, is or start my own private equity firm. Was that a, a plan or a vision that you had in mind for the, all those nine years or five years, or did it all just sort of happen quickly there toward the end? I think this vision has been around for quite some time. I felt that I would be most useful somewhere between, somewhere in the role of quasi-investor, quasi-operator kind of role, some bit of investor strategic thinking at the same time, having a management control. So starting a private firm, which had management control of the firm, looked to me as the right use of my kind of personality and my capabilities. I could do it for multiple companies at the same time. At the same time, I was not going to go deep in one company and just basically limiting my impact. When I built a company in SaaS, SaaS became the industry which I knew most about. So it became kind of very natural for me to build a private firm which is focused on SaaS companies. This is how I kind of reached the conclusion and after that, I think if you kind of use what makes you happy and what you're capable of, if you start from there and then figure out where you can sell in the world, 
in the most scalable way i think you'll figure out where you need to be and for everybody it's a different answer but i think the process is similar great and then going back to something that you mentioned earlier on the way that basis differentiates themselves in the market my sense of that part of our conversation is that basis brings a bit more operations horsepower to the table so whenever you're looking at a SaaS business you can tell those entrepreneurs hey look we can give you capital there's lots of people out there that can give you capital one thing that we bring to the table that's different is we can help you grow this we have institutional knowledge in-house and we can bring that to the table for you that's right and we kind of went pretty far in the direction by building up the best practices around marketing sales operations technology of saas companies and that way for these small companies that we get into it's not trial and error to figure out these things you know it's kind of prepackaged we also help them hire the people that we have experience with so it's kind of becomes we come in as almost as a co-founder in the companies where the company is still being run by the founders and we provide them all the knowledge all the resources all the capabilities kind of in one place and we just win win you know they're still a minority shareholder in the companies their value of their shareholding go up but of course we are majority shareholder our value of our shareholding also goes up you've started two businesses at the very least here one it sounds like you bootstrapped you used your own capital to start that business the other one you immediately went out and raised money is that right that's right Thinking about some of the folks that might be listening to this podcast who have that entrepreneurial spirit like yourself, what would you recommend to them? Bootstrap it, try to you know, use as much personal money as you can, or go out there and search for some institutional capital? It depends on what the purpose of the, the entrepreneurial journey is. If you want independence and you want to maintain your freedom, I think bootstrap, bootstrapping is the way to go. And many times that is what people are looking for. They are looking to be their own boss and then control over their career, their life, which is in their control. The bootstrapping is a great way to do that. If you are looking to make a dent in the world, either by you or in your absence, your company going and making the dent in the world, learn tons of things in the process. The are comfortable with diplomacy and managing a very varied set of stakeholders with their own interests. I think building a company with VC money makes sense. VC money comes with a lot of strings attached, but there's a lot of money available. So in four years, you will learn a lot more. You'll be building a business, but you'll also be spending quite a bit of time in managing the stakeholders compared to if you were bootstrapping the company, where you basically it's your company, you're doing whatever. But the size in bootstrap companies probably be one tenth of what it is, <laughs> or even more lesser than what it would be if you're a VC backer. This is a trade-off between these two, and that is why I'm saying that the journey starts from knowing what you want. Do you want to be king, or do you want to be? There's a rich versus powerful kind of fame. You know, that's the third thing that people look for. You need to know exactly what you want, and if you know, it just becomes much easier for you to build exactly that will make you happy. I think it's a great piece of advice for us to end on here. I know management consultants look working 80 hours a week, flying around the world. It's all about speed, efficiency, tackling the problems that generate the most value. But it sounds like your advice is before you make a big jump, when you're thinking about your next move, take the time to really evaluate what it is, one that you're good at and what you want to be doing, what you want to be spending the eight to 10 hours of your day you know, busy with. Is that the sense of your advice there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Good. 
Well, Abrish, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for joining us here on Beyond Consulting. And very excited to have you as a guest on the podcast. Thank you so much, Stephen, for inviting me. Of course. Thank you. Thank you.